Thank you for tuning in to the ADHD Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Gloria Joy Sherrod, licensed clinical professional counselor and ADHD expert, and I'm here to share with you a wealth of information on how you can manage your ADHD in adulthood. All right, I'm here with Kelsey Mora today, who is a dual certified child life specialist and licensed clinical professional counselor specializing in medical illness and grief. She has developed a career focused on supporting parents with talking to children about difficult topics and supporting kids and teens with coping and communication skills. She works in private practice for Illness Navigation Resource and is the chief clinical officer of a nonprofit called Pickles Group, which provides support to kids impacted by their parents' cancer. Hello, Kelsey. It's so great to have you today. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be with you. Absolutely. So what you do is so important. I actually had never heard of a child life specialist before I met you in grad school. And so I was always super fascinated by the work that you do. What is it that kind of led you to wanting to do this work? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually had an experience as a teenager. I had just turned 16 and one of my friends was in treatment for leukemia. And so I actually visited him in the hospital toward the end of his journey. He unfortunately died from his leukemia and I was in the hospital when he died. It was a really hard experience as a teenager. So I um, started volunteering where he was treated and I learned about child life and I built my whole career as a as a young teenager with a goal and dream of becoming a child life specialist. Wow. That- that is so fascinating. So you kind of knew what you exactly what you wanted to do down to the niche since you were in high school. Yeah, studied child psychology and created my whole undergraduate career to pursue the the profession. And what does like a day in the life of a child life therapist look like? What do you do? Yeah, that's a great question. So so when I was a child life specialist only, I worked in pediatrics. So child life specialists are typically found in pediatric health centers, providing support to kids who are getting diagnoses or procedures or treatment or siblings of a child or children of an adult patient. So it's really focused on that medical experience. But in the last several years, child life has really expanded beyond the hospital. And so in 2015, I went back to grad school and got my counseling degree so that I could really expand what I was doing with families. So helping with anxiety and depression, mental health concerns in the context of illness and grief. So now as both a child life specialist and therapist, I'm really helping provide both traditional therapy, but also non-traditional therapy in the sense that I'm using my child life background to really meet the unique needs of kids and teens facing illness or grief related challenges. Wow. And so are you typically dealing with pretty significant illnesses typically, or I guess when I I don't want to minimize anyone's illness by saying significant or not, but terminal illnesses, or do you also deal with children who are facing chronic conditions? Yeah, it's such a range. I work with kids who are facing, you know, acute healthcare experiences like needle phobia or preparing for a surgery um, or a dental procedure. But then I also see kids who have chronic health conditions or experiences like food allergies, inflammatory bowel diseases, diabetes, parent illness. I see a lot of autoimmune disorders, neurodegenerative diseases, and certainly on the, a lot of cancer, a lot of parent cancer. And I do see families who are navigating anticipatory grief or loss, full before and after a death. Wow. 
And so when we were chatting about ADHD and how your kind of your role ties into that, we talked about kind of a couple things, parents explaining their diagnosis to their children, and then even your observations of how neurodivergent kiddos manage grief maybe differently than neurotypical kiddos. So in your observation, I guess we'll start with kind of talking with parents or parents talking with children about their ADHD diagnosis. How would you recommend parents explain that to their kids? Yeah, it's so important. Like a big part of what I do is teaching parents and adults on how to break down confusing topics for kids at different ages. So that could be, you know, a medical illness or a mental health diagnosis or, you know, a death and dying circumstance. And so in terms of ADHD, it is so important. That could be a parent disclosing their own diagnosis or diagnosis of a child or even a sibling. And so I think I always take a really strength-based approach and a lot of science. So kind of breaking things down in a scientific way. It's funny because in grad school, we talk so much about psychoeducation and that's what child life is, right? It's like teaching kids about things. So yeah, I mean, I like to start with explaining that everyone's brains are made and wired and learn differently. And so there's nothing wrong with somebody, but there are certain ways of learning that have names, right? So then we can kind of talk about what is this called? It's called ADHD and we might spell out the words and explain what that means. But I think it's also important, just I would explain to a kid that no two cancers are alike, because sometimes I'll have kids who maybe lost a grandparent to cancer and now they're facing a different type of cancer that has a different prognosis. I also think it's important to explain that ADHD brains are all different, right? So some ADHD brains might have a harder time focusing. Some ADHD brains might, you know, have a harder time controlling their thoughts or, or actions. And so really being able to personalize that discussion for what's coming up for that person, whether it be the parent or the child or the loved one. And I feel like when I was working with kids, I got the question a lot, should I tell them that they have this diagnosis? And I think from our point of view, yeah, of course you should tell them. <laughs> But as a parent, especially not involved in the mental health field or behind the scenes, it's a really good question. Why do you think it's important that people either disclose their own as a parent or explain their children's diagnosis to them? Yeah, I think I think it, this is so related to, you know, the medical conversations too. A lot of parents will ask, you know, they're scared to tell their child. And I think that's just a protective factor of wanting to protect our kid from hard things. And probably someone who's asking that question feels talking about ADHD is a bad or scary thing. And so I actually think by talking about it, we're reducing that stigma and kind of normalizing that this is okay. This is how your brain learns. And there's actually things we can do to help that or to support that. So I think the reason is also because that is if it, especially if it's the kid it's going on with the kid's own brain and body right so they really deserve to know what's going on to make sense of the way that they show up in a classroom or in interactions and understand why that is and what they can do about it i also think it models that it's an okay thing to talk about usually i find that kids feel so much more nervous or stressed by the things we're not talking to them about right rather than the things we're actually sitting down and explaining to them and so i think that takes a lot of adults feeling more comfortable with the diagnosis to then understand the importance of talking to a child about it. For sure. I think definitely people are seeking to protect their children from hard things. But then I think, yeah, we forget that, oh, they know that they're different or they know that they're struggling. And so it's easier for them to navigate that if they know why and what they can do for themselves to manage and how to advocate for themselves and all that. So yeah, I think it also builds trust, right? I would just not want, just I wouldn't want a kiddo to find out about a cancer diagnosis from a nurse. I wouldn't want 
a kid to find out about ADHD from a teacher, right? It really should be from their most trusted adults, if that's a parent or a primary caregiver, in collaboration with those other professionals as well. That's a really good point, because I think we also forget that they're little people. They're human beings. And right, as adults, we wouldn't want to find out scary news from in a scary way or from a stranger or for something to catch us off guard. And so to have parents kind of navigate that situation with their children is super important. So when it comes to grief, I've actually received this question a lot, and I haven't really done a lot of research on grief and ADHD and how it's different. So I'm really interested to hear what differences you've observed in children who are neurodivergent and how they navigate grief. Yeah, I so I'm going to speak more anecdotally and experientially, but I think it would be really interesting to see what research is out there in terms of really assessing how these things are showing up in a clinical way or, you know, with a larger sum of people. But I've seen enough of it to say that grief makes it hard for anyone to focus, right? There's this thing on your mind that I think is really hard and stressful. And I see so many children impacted by grief, you know, struggling in the school environment, whether that be, you know, navigating peers, how to talk about the thing that's happening at home or unexpected triggers. You know, maybe they're reading a book in class that has an element of, of death and dying and, you know, really needing an outlet at school. They spend so many hours a day at school that we really need like supportive plans for how to support grieving students. So if a student has ADHD and is grieving, it, it just exacerbates those challenges so much. I think it makes it hard for the student to know what's what, but also for teachers and parents. And so I think it's really helpful to be able to have transparency and kind of working through what's coming up for those students, both before and during and after, you know, the loss itself to really try to make sense of that and wrap around support to deal with it. And when you say that it kind of exacerbates the ADHD symptoms, what kinds of things do you see escalating in children with ADHD and dealing with grief? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, motion regulation, I think just controlling, you know, and coordinating how to navigate those moments that are really unexpected. I talk about grief waves, right? So if a kiddo is experiencing really heightened, you know, sadness in a moment or fear in a moment, it might be harder to regulate or control um, with an ADHD brain. I also think distractibility and ability to focus, manage so many things at once. When I have kids who are teenagers who have a parent who's nearing end of life at home and it's finals week. It's a perfect storm, right? I can't do finals. I'm getting so much homework and getting so much reading. And then I come home and, and my parent is dying, right? And that is so much to navigate. And then for a brain that has a hard time organizing tasks to be able to do that on a good day, let alone a hard day, it just feels really impossible. And so I think that's where, you know, making reasonable accommodations, also being in close communication with schools about what makes sense for the situation is really important. For sure. And we also talked about the fact that sometimes they don't have a diagnosis yet. And so now it's a question of, is this person struggling with grief or trauma or do they have ADHD? How do you usually sift through that? I'm sure that you refer eventually, but kind of on your own when you're working with them, how do you sift through that? Yeah, I mean, I think trying to get a, a good history, right, of course, through assessment, what are some of the behaviors and experiences that were happening, you know, previously, currently, what's changed, I think the age of the child, the timing makes, you know, really important to just get a good history and understand what's changed or what's coming up and how those are showing up in different settings, right, home versus school versus extracurricular activities. 
And then of course, my role in that moment, if I'm being referred as a primary focused on grief counseling, I'm going to give it some good time, right? To work through grief and strategies for coping and self-regulating. And if we see that some of these challenges are continuing, I often am referring for neuropsych testing just to kind of really get a good evaluation on what's going on. And depending on the age of the child, it might actually be that they were concerned about these behaviors prior, these challenges prior, and weren't able to address it given you know, given age or given the timing of a diagnosis, let's say a medical diagnosis. And so now it's kind of peeling back the layers and figuring out what's still existing and, and needing to be addressed. For sure. That can be so challenging. I know that's a constant question in our field. Is it trauma or is it ADHD mm -hmm. or are those two things the same thing? And I can just think back, you know, as a child with ADHD, I wasn't diagnosed yet. Definitely had this inner knowing that something was different. And I remember going through difficult things and that is all I could think about in class. So I wasn't thinking about the lesson because I was thinking about what was going on. And I think when we look from the outside, what we see is a child who's not paying attention, but we don't know why if the child isn't able to say, I've been thinking about this thing all day. That's why I'm not focusing. So it's easy for if we don't really get that history or peel back the layers for us to say, oh, this child just can't pay attention versus, oh, they have a lot on their mind or, oh, they're having trouble regulating because they're already boiling all the time. And then as soon as something happens, the pot is overflowing. So kind of figuring out what the chicken egg thing is so difficult. Yeah. And I mean, I think I always say to my patients too, that, you know, testing is so incredibly helpful and they are also the expert in their body. Right. And so diagnoses are really helpful to inform treatment, but a lot of times treatment is designed to address presenting problems. Right. So I'm thinking of, you know, a teenager I have who's grieving the loss of their parent who went through neuropsych testing, diagnosed with ADHD, started medication, having a lot more engagement with therapy since starting medication. And now we're kind of able to address prolonged grief, but also strategies around executive function. Functioning. And then I had another similar patient that's grieving the loss of a parent who went through neuropsych testing, concerned about ADHD, and really the testing revealed more of that centered on anxiety. So the treatment's looking different, but in therapy, if executive functioning is a thing you're struggling with, I'm not so concerned at that point what's causing it. We can still use similar strategies, right? So I think it's really important to use and rely on testing and also value what a kid is saying that they're struggling with and still treat that in therapy, you know, because if it's anxiety causing the, the difficulty focusing, there's still similar strategies we can use to cope with the inattention. For sure. I remember having a really good, she was actually a forensic psychologist, but she ended up being the trauma, this makes sense. She was the trauma professor in school. And she said, there's this huge push to sift through executive functioning because of trauma and executive functioning difficulties because of ADHD. And at that age, when in their formative years, it doesn't matter. We have to address this executive functioning difficulty, whether it's this or that in terms of reasoning. And then the second thing I was thinking about was medication and engagement in therapy. How have you observed medication changing the way that someone engages with therapy? I feel like when a child is really struggling, whether it's dysregulated as a result of ADHD or dysregulated as a result of heightened anxiety or even depression, I think when we can seek more stability and balance in that distress, they are better able to engage in therapy, right? They're more, they are more focused, they are more intentional, and I see more 
with any therapy, you have to kind of be ready and open to participate. And I think grief is no different. And so, you know, having some balance and kind of things calm down a little bit, whether that's as a a usually what we're talking about a result of medication, then I feel they're just better able to engage in therapy and have better outcomes. That makes sense. Cause I've definitely personally and professionally, it's easy in therapy without medication or without the skills to end up rambling about God knows what for an hour, because, you know, with the ADHD brain, we're talking about this and then our brain is, oh, that reminds me of this thing. And you could end up in this tunnel of that reminds me, that reminds me. And then (laughs) you never actually get to where you're going. And so I feel definitely when thinking about processing grief, it would make sense that if someone can organize their own thoughts a little bit better and stay on track, they can make sense of things better than if they're kind of all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, when I think about how to navigate grief with a kiddo who has an ADHD diagnosis, I think it's so helpful to use the same strategies, you know, that help their ADHD brain with learning in the space of processing and supporting grief or illness. So matching their energy, matching their attention span, matching their style of engagement, right? If it's, you know, playing board games and, you know, or if it's using art, you know, I have a teenager that I was just doing the timeline with and with art or drawing the timeline and reflecting back on the last time you saw your parent and the last time you visited the hospital. And, you know, we're doing trauma work and tolerating even the distress of having that conversation, but also in the context of ADHD, like staying with that conversation and then also limiting it when we've, when we've maxed out either based on attention or based on distress. So it's a both and, but ultimately we have to match. I I work with kids and teens, so I have to match them and meet them where they're at, regardless of how they, regardless of a diagnosis, I have to meet them where they're at from the place of learning and the way they're wired. Yeah, that takes incredible skill. I think a lot of people, I remember when we were starting out in grad school, there were how many people want to work with kids and you and maybe two other people raise their hands because it's such a skill. It really takes a special person to be able to, I feel like if you can explain something to a child, you can explain something to literally anyone because it. you have to take such complex ideas and make them understandable to, you know, someone who may not understand that. So kudos to you. That's amazing. All the skills (laughs) that it takes to work with kids is impressive. Thanks. Yeah. I I just had a kid in my office whose dad has cancer and they also have ADHD. And we, I think we did five activities in one session, you know, making a target to write things that you're mad about and then making a worry out of clay and throwing the clay at the target. And, you know, we were, we were practicing impulse control and, you know, focus and attention and organized, organized thinking and in the context of grieving and, you know, the illness itself or the things that have changed as a result of illness. And, you know, this is a kiddo who's struggling with the fact that dad doesn't feel well to play with me because this child needs really active play because of their type of ADHD. And so really these things, I'm not an expert in ADHD by any means, and I don't pretend to be. I consult with so many, you know, external providers when and where I need to, but I have to know how to work with neurodivergent children in the context of illness and grief, which comes up all the time for me. Yes, that's amazing. So basically inclusivity, that's, I love that you said that because I think we're on a journey in the education system for sure, in terms of understanding that in order to really be an educator or in order to work with kids, you have to be someone who's okay with working with any kind of brain. And I think up until this point, we we didn't fully understand the fact that you have to be able to work with any kind of brain. So being able to consult with people and just having this human 
human-centered. You're a person, you have your own needs. What are those needs? Those needs might include five different activities in one session. Just being able to be flexible and get to know people. And yeah, it's fun. It's fun, right? I can come in yeah. with a plan, but if I'm not willing to change the plan based on what that child or teen needs, it, then it would never be you know, as effective or impactful. Yes, man. I remember being a daycare teacher and having the best activity planned ever. And then we do it and the kids are like, this is boring. And then we have to do something completely different or everyone's leaving circle time. So it is, it's rough sometimes, but it is fun. So actually the person that I interviewed for the podcast a couple days ago were telling me that they have an entire neurodivergent family and how she explained it to her kids, which I thought was really sweet, was that everybody has a plate and everybody takes what they need and puts it on their plate in terms of their learning needs and things in the house. And so that's something that we see a lot given that ADHD and autism are genetic. So we're especially now finding a lot of parents and children having different learning needs. How do you help families cope with everyone having different needs in terms of neurodiversity? Well, I mean... That's where I think I do a lot of the parent consultation sessions where if I'm meeting with, you know, parents or primary caregivers and I give a ton of talks on how to have difficult conversations with kids, specifically for my role at a nonprofit, we do a lot of talks on how to talk about cancer with kids. But there sometimes is that need where parents, I need to talk to you about my individual kids, right? Because they're all so unique and have, you know, how am I going to talk to my two-year-old versus my 10-year-old? Or how am I going to talk to my eight and 10-year-old who have really different learning needs? And so being able to kind of understand what different kids need and customize language or the delivery of information to those different kiddos, I think is really important for parents to hear. And then I do a lot of family sessions in the context of illness and grief. So being able to just validate for families that everyone is going to grieve and cope differently. Um, That's because we're all individual humans, but it also might be influenced by how one learns. And so I think that's super important so that families feel empowered to show up in the way that they need to and respect and honor how their family members need to show up. And, you know, that just came up with a family was working with where they're embarking on a two-year death anniversary and different family members are wanting are thinking about and showing up to that time frame differently in terms of what they need and trying to figure out how we can figure something out that works for everybody but also respects different needs and so I think just being again flexible about modifying to meet needs and just normalizing and validating that it's okay to have differences and even how we approach these topics based on who who people are yes that respect of other people's needs is super important because I can see where that could become really challenging where one person might be really maybe visibly emotional about something because of the way they present, but someone else might not be because of the way their brain works. They might not appear to be grieving. How do you kind of cope with the fact that people might feel almost maybe even offended by the fact that someone is dealing with something differently? Yeah, I mean, it even extends beyond like crying or not crying. And you may have a kid who's laughing at a really inappropriate appropriate time, right? And Mm -hmm. not because they think something's funny. It's because they maybe feel uncomfortable or maybe their brain's having a hard time processing what's going on. And so I just really kind of demonstrate and model that radical acceptance of yeah, that someone's body's having them laugh in this moment. And that's okay. We're all different, right? I don't think that they're thinking this is funny. I think their body's figuring out how to process or deal with this, right? Actually saying the things out loud on behalf of a family, right? And 
or, you know, trying to understand where different things are coming from. Like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to not cry. There's no right or wrong way to do these things. It's really hard. There's no handbook. And so we just have to just have to respect and love everyone through however they're showing up because no one's we've never done this before, right? Like, you didn't expect to be here. And I wish you weren't here. So let's figure this out together, you know, for dealing with something really, really devastating and, and hard. Yes. Wow. That's actually a good point. And it's funny because I feel I've had this conversation in the comment section a few times with people where they're I laugh when it is not the right time at all to laugh. And I've mm-hmm. noticed that for neurodivergent people, when they're having trouble processing, that's actually a big one that comes up. Yeah. I mean, this is not a case of a child with, who's neurodivergent, but I had a family who the dad was actively dying and I was providing support in the home and the youngest child was wanting to eat Cheetos and go to the block party and the older siblings were having a hard time understanding that. And so I was even able to validate that like, it might be really hard for them to be in this room. They're just, you know, blank years old. And so it's not coming from a place of not wanting or needing something, but just doing what, what, you know, is in their control in these moments. That's normal for different ages, right? So where an older child or a child who is neurotypical might be, why are you laughing, right? Why are you acting that way? Why are you going to the black party? This is important, you know, and it's, we have to be that voice of reason for the kids when maybe they're struggling to understand how other people are processing. You don't have to understand it, right? But you have to respect it and and be kind. Yes. I had a therapist once say, what did she say? You don't have to also the same toppings on pizza, but you have to respect the fact that other people like that topping on their pizza. I can't, it's a better analogy than that. But when working with families, understanding that fact that the only person we can control is ourselves and we can't think that we know what other people are thinking and feeling by what we see. Those are such important conversations to have as families that we don't often have especially neurodivergent families, because there's a lot of that misunderstanding and confusion that can come up. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So where can people find you and any resources that you're connected with? Yeah, so I wear a few different hats. I would say so, you know, my private practice is called, it's not mine, I'm, a, I'm part of a practice called Illness Navigation Resources. And so that's where I provide a lot of the private support. But I have an Instagram handle, Child Life Therapist, where I'm kind of exploring putting out some content and support for families and clinicians. So definitely finding me there and requesting different topics so I can grow and learn with the community and the audience. And then I'm also the chief clinical officer of a nonprofit called Pickles Group. So we provide free support and resources and youth programs for kids who have a parent or primary caregiver with cancer. So definitely anyone who's listening who knows someone or fits into that lived experience would definitely want them to know about Pickles Group and get involved. And I share a lot about Pickles Group on my professional child therapist account as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that amazing information. I will be checking out all of those resources and putting everything in the show notes. And that is it. Awesome. Thanks, Gloria. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the ADHD Coach Podcast. For more information, you can visit my website, GloriaJoyShirad.com. There you'll find information about coaching packages, purchasing my book, Adulting with ADHD, and viewing my documentary, also Adulting with ADHD. And of course, don't forget to subscribe.